0: Welcome to the second half of episode five of A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, a podcast series hosted by me, Alex Thompson of Eastern Approaches, and I'm joined as ever by Mike Robinson of UK Column and David Scott of Northern Exposure. In episode four and the first part of episode five, we have explored the concept of democracy and especially in its British context have discussed why some serious thinkers have thought that it is not actually the panacea that it is now held up to be. This time, we're homing in on a pamphlet, a collection of five essays that seems to put a point on this very well. It's a pamphlet by Ben Green, spelt with an E on the end, a cousin of the famous writer Graham Green, and the pamphlet is called The British Constitution and the Corruption of Parliament. It's available principally from candour.org.uk in the bookstore section of that website. Ben Green is most interesting because he has collected the thoughts and realisations of many others and therefore stands on the shoulders of giants. To give a one-minute potted biography of the man, he was a pacifist in pre-war Oxford went over to Germany and became very disillusioned about the goings-on between the Nazis and those trying to get away from them, which gave him some idea of money powers behind the national powers. He was locked up as one of the victims of the notoriously unlawful Defence Regulations 18b. He challenged that because MI5 had failed to provide grounds of reasonable suspicion that he was in contact with the enemy harming the war effort but a shadow hung over him for the rest of his life and he was unable to conduct business with quite the success that he would have done otherwise. It turned out that there was a lifelong grudge held against him by Maxwell Knight, Britain's chief domestic spymaster of the time, notorious as the man who was M. Towards the end of his life, Ben Green wrote the essays which have now been bundled together as The British Constitution and The Corruption of Parliament, and the takeaway from that if you would like, my one-sentence view, is that he's realised there is no ethical, probably not even a lawful basis in Britain, for ministers of the Crown continuing to sit as members of Parliament, and he has begun to see that there is a problem with the party system itself, because once you have voted for a party bloc, it presents all its pre-cooked decisions to the people as what the people voted for, the popular will you're only getting what you voted for, so stop complaining about the tyranny and the loss of liberty that we're foisting upon you. But David, I think you have a summary in five points of what you took away from Ben Green's writings.
1: Yes, I mean they were very interesting. And the, the, some of the quotes were extremely striking. The, the essays overlapped quite a bit, but that actually served reading it as a pamphlet to just reinforce the points and helped the main message uh, sink in. So my, my takeaway was as follows. Now, you, you might disagree with some of this, but here's what I noted down having, having read uh, his work. Point one, Britain has no effective constitution, just the arbitrary power of parliament. Point two, the French revolutionary idea that the will of the people is the ultimate authority rather than the law of God is what created this system. Point three, the old idea of Parliament as a conduit for the people to be represented to the state and a breakup on the state has become Parliament is the state. Therefore, the legal preeminence of the old Parliament over the state has become the legal preeminence of the state over the people. Point four, the party system is the means whereby this system is perpetuated And point five, universal suffrage is a mechanism whereby this system appeals to the basest instincts of man as the foundation for its policy and power.
0: That is quite a mouthful for those not accustomed to thinking in such pristine constitutional terms. But I think anyone listening to that fairly will conclude that a trick has been played on the British people at some point. We're going to try to work out what the essence of that trick is. At any rate, it seems to be that we are being sold one thing and given another. We're being sold, for example, the idea that the people want a certain package of policies. But in fact, the traditional and the lawful role of the House of Commons in particular is to grill ministers on individual policies and hold them individually accountable for each of the decisions that they make. But of course, if you have a cabinet system of government, something that was swelling in Ben Green's lifetime, and something that we report on in UK Column News now because the cabinet office is in control of everything, foreign policy, security policy, health policy, all seems to emanate from number 70 Whitehall, the cabinet office, then you don't actually have individual ministers anymore, do you? You just have this... Uh, amorphous blob, the Ministers of the Crown, and the worst of it is, as Ben Green begins to tease out, we can't even, we are told now, hold Ministers of the Crown liable and insist that the Queen sack them individually for their misbehaviour or acting beyond their powers, because it was a whole ticket of Ministers that got voted in, and they are Members of Parliament for the governing majority party in the Westminster system. Is that not is that not a large part of what is going wrong here?
2: First thing to note is, of course, under the cabinet system, there is this idea of collective responsibility, Um, and so nobody, in fact, no individual is responsible for the actions of any individual. But actually, Ben Green uh, didn't foresee as, as. as valid as his criticisms of this cabinet system are, and the party system in particular, he didn't see the direction that that was going to go in, and particularly since the time of Tony Blair, when the role of even the cabinet and the role of cabinet ministers changed beyond anything that he was envisaging in his in his pamphlets to the point where uh, ministers of the crown no longer even design any kind of policy themselves it's the uh, permanent civil service which does that uh, and ministers of the crown are simply there as uh, implementers at worst salespeople at best uh, to sell the policy which has come through well, whatever mechanism that that the uh,
1: permanent civil service is part of, uh, to the people, what the work of Ben Green does show is this sleight of hand whereby he revisits what the what the system used to be, and shows how it worked. The state, the executive, the, is the monarch, and the people, the monarch appoints and that can be taken from anybody in the country, right across society, whoever the monarch considers the most able, and that those people have to be approved by Parliament. So frivolous or corrupt appointments would not get that approval. The point he says is well that that ultimately the Parliament is is preeminent in in, in the legal system and uh cannot be overridden by the monarch. So it's a it's a break upon the power of the state and i i do see how that would be a better system and it also shows how the failure of the monarchy to maintain its part of the of of the power system of our governance of our government has has been fundamental in the failure of the system of government in the uk it shows how long ago that failure commenced and we're talking right back into victoria if if not if not beyond um so we're not talking about the present queen as being uniquely responsible this form of governance is we can see this in the modern world because it's
2: What happens in the United States, you have an executive, which is separate from the legislature. You have a cabinet, which is separate from the legislature. You don't have ministers or secretaries of state as part of Congress in any way, shape or form. But Congress has to go through a process of approval. They have to be approved. The the president appoints them, but
1: they are approved by Congress. And this is how it used to work in this country as well. This is a point that Ben Green makes, that the reason for the American Revolution was in very large part, the attempt by Parliament in the UK to take for itself authoritarian um, absolute power and the resistance of, of the Americans, standing as they saw it for British liberty originally, to resist that um, that, that
0: innovation there was a lot going on just at around the time of the American Revolution and perhaps if we want to put down some chronological markers at this point let's do that let's start in that 18th century i'll deliberately not talk about the very first year of the century in any detail when the Act of Settlement was passed just before the Union of England with Scotland, because a viewer and listener of UK Column Material contacted me and made exactly the same discoveries as I had in the same time frame about the Act of Settlement. So I think we will park that for another time, but I will just place the marker there that it does seem pretty clear that just before the Act of Union, the English Parliament, before it amalgamated with the Scottish Parliament, put down a specific Statutory requirement that nobody who was a member of parliament could receive positions of financial gain from the crown, including salaries as ministers. Traditionally, they would resign their seats as members of parliament uh, if one of them uh, had been chosen by the crown to be elevated to be a member of the executive, because those functions are totally incompatible with each other. But let's leave that to one side. The decade of the American Revolution, uh, just before which, of course, a lot of tussles between the executive and parliament had been going on. The 1765 case of Entink versus Carrington, which formalized the constitutional principle that the government can't do what it wants. Uh, that was a decade that saw a lot of uh, members of parliament uh, struggle very hard for their rights to represent their constituents, independent of any concept of party or what the executive wanted, Uh, and some of them ended up as as cause celebre. So in 1770, at the state opening of Parliament, William Pitt took up the cause of a Liberal member of Parliament uh, to whom he was fundamentally politically opposed and said, we have just in our own lifetimes thrown off absolutism of the king the divine right of kings under the Stuarts, and now we seem to be replacing it with a divine right of parliament, not his exact words, but a summary of his uh, very impassioned speech in January 1770. And then, of course, in that decade, as you say, David, there was the American Revolution. Now, fast forward a century, things going on behind the scenes we're not very well aware of, but early in Queen Victoria's reign, this does seem to pick up again. Uh, The strict division of who had what role in making and guarding the laws, the tripartite system of Commons, Lords and Crown, or Executive, Legislature, Judiciary, seems to be breaking down with the encroachment of vested interests. And so, and Ben Green notes many of these dates, 1867 sees the publication of a seminal work that many lawyers now read on the Constitution, Uh, written by Bajot, B-A-G-E-H-O-T. And he brings in the term parliamentary democracy. Britain is a parliamentary democracy. And, of course, before that, we had been told that we had legal democracy or democracy under law. A few years after that, 1874, the parties, in those days principally the Conservative and the Liberal parties, become fully whipped. So if you vote for the blue candidate or the yellow candidate in any of the shires, you're getting the blue policy package or the yellow policy package set from Westminster. 1885, Albert Dicey writes another crucial book now uh, banded about among lawyers as the book on parliamentary sovereignty and indeed he is the man dicey who brings in this slippery term parliamentary sovereignty so the sleight of hand at that point is that uh, the system has actually told the queen back in queen victoria's day you're not the top of the pile anymore you representing the people are off to the side because parliament has decided that it is the ultimate arbiter of what is right in in enacting laws 1905 to 1906, you get a period of effectively Parliament declaring at the House of Commons level, we're even sovereign above the House of Lords. They can't overturn any legislation. Uh, Later on, Lord Hailsham calls this elective despotism. A lot of things happen through the 20th century that Ben Green also describes in detail, but a lot of the harm does seem to have come through the Victorian period. David, you have looked into especially the latter end of that period, and we don't want to get sidetracked too much, but the 30-year slow drumbeat leading up to the First World War. Have you, in reading what you have read, seen any debates between people as to we must pursue certain policies because the people want it, this invocation of the people or the popular will uh, as an undoing of what is lawful?
1: Oh, for sure, yes. I mean, one of the most preeminent claims to achievement of uh, Lord Salisbury's successor, Arthur Balfour, of Balfour Declaration fame, was uh, an education act. And it's quite clear that he did not want to, to create the education act. It was done in response to a grumble of discontent and a drumbeat of, of, of demands of from the shires, from the towns, from the boroughs, from the people via the parliament. And the effect, which he could quite clearly see as overall harmful effect, was to put the state in charge of how we educate our children to think. And he could see the problems with that. And he tried to reach a political compromise and tried to settle the problem with the least harm possible, but the entire driver for the development of the education policy at that point was bottom-up. It was give us money, give us funding. We want the state to use taxation to provide what we used to provide for our, own, for our own people or we used to provide locally. We want the whole thing taken up by a state with coercive taxation power and we want the, the authority to go to the middle and we want the middle to give us cash. That was the UK um, background around about that period. If you go to the States, uh, this is a period where big business cartelization had failed, you know, because the problem with cartels is they never last. The you know, rate busters would come in and, and offer lower prices and compete, and the competition would start all over again. And all the big business, oil, big oil, big railroad, had tried and tried and tried again to set up cartels to fleece the public, and they'd always failed. And uh, they decided that the way to to overcome this was regulation. So more power to the state. More power to the state, and we, the big business, will benefit from this because we'll stop those pesky new entrants into the marketplace out-competing us. So you have a whole series of demands for the state to become ever bigger. The state's responding by coming bigger. It's not top-down. It, it really looks to me it's a bottom-up demand. It's come and rule us. Come and rule us, but give us free stuff. This is, this is the, 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 the mainspring behind this. And this, I think, is an issue that Ben Green misses and doesn't get into. He looks at the corruption of the Constitution. He looks at the sleight of hand, where the Parliament started off being one thing and became essentially its opposite. He looks at the, the system whereby Parliament becomes tyrannical and the nation declines, and he looks at the national decline that's overlapped with this. But he doesn't really ask the, himself the question, why? What's the, what's the mainspring actually driving this forward? Uh, and that is, of course, issues to do with the people and their beliefs and their understanding and their self-discipline and their self-governance and the failure of some of these issues and the manifestation of normal human failings into a political system, which morphed it from relative liberty. Even at the time of the American Revolution was claiming that we are defending liberty, the system that we're fighting was still, by, by current standards, amazingly free into um, the current uh, mess where
0: Parliament seems to be once again absolute. Can we summarise that perhaps by saying that you cannot be politically free if you are economically uninformed and that the problem with extending the franchise and particularly setting up these Yabu groups called parties that, that yell at each other is that if the dominant one gets the ability to say we represent the 51% or the 75%, uh, you just have to buckle under and accept our party manifesto, that what that does is it gives the slight majority that's voted for that party an, an unjustified sense of their superiority and the rightness of the things that they have demanded. Because in their demanding them, being worked up to demand them, they didn't understand what it would cost them.
2: But there's more than that, because they've been told that Parliament is sovereign. And so they are getting uh, a uh, a view of themselves which is not correct. And what's fascinating about this is, uh, I think in the last episode, I mentioned the uh, general studies book for AS level from one of the major uh, exam boards and the fact they had a section on the British Constitution in it and that, that it said nothing about Magna Carta, it said nothing about common law. It begins its story with the Bill of Rights. And of course, the story that we're all told is that the bill of rights is the source of parliamentary democracy you were talking earlier Alex about the argument that the divine right of kings could be replaced with the divine right of parliament well what you've just told us a few minutes ago is that that didn't happen with the bill of rights although we're told that it did uh, that happened really with Bagehot and, and Dicey persuading parliament that, that that's what the bill of rights
1: said which it isn't and the french revolution and the associated ideas. And here we come back to the, the role of the Enlightenment, which we might, we might explore later on uh, in this series. In producing the ideas, it says that the will
0: of the people is absolute. Here is my one-paragraph summary of that. Uh, I, wrote to my, I wrote a note to myself about uh, Green as follows. The will of the people, or in French revolutionary terms, la volonté générale, the general will or majority will, is the crux of the trick when we vote for parties, along with the notion that the sovereign should be above politics or that she even can be above politics. To claim this is not actually to elevate the Queen to some echelon of Victorian pageantry, as Walter Basho and Albert Dicey made us imagine in their books, 1867 and 1885, when they said that she was now actually just there for dignified show But actually to do this is instead to make the Queen, our representative of our sovereignty, subordinate to what? To an invisible political machine. And uh, stating the obvious, perhaps, but usefully so, Ben Green does say in the first of his essays that the party system's first loyalty is to itself. Whenever you call an entity into being, its first interest will be self-preservation and self-extension, won't it?
2: What follows then is the role of, of the average member of parliament has become one. Uh, not of representing the will of his constituents in Parliament, but of representing the party to his constituents, and this is uh, <laughs> a
1: pretty fundamental part of the problem. What one of the aspects I thought Green made very clear, and a point he made very well, was was this issue of what's happened to uh, the monarch and the monarchy. To to quote a short piece uh, of his work here, he wrote: uh, "This new principle of English law and government." marked the re- rejection of the cardinal principle of the historic English constitution by which all authority, including the supremacy of parliament, was subject to God and the law based upon the process of judicial reason and consent. This fundamental break with the constitutional past was, however, obscured by the retention of its forms, institutions and ceremonies. These symbols of a historic constitution were described by Bajo as the dignified parts and retained only, quote, to excite and preserve the reverence of the population, end quote, and thus to disguise what Baggio called the efficient parts by which the new constitution actually works and rules. So what he's describing here, that's the end, end quote, what Green's describing here is counterfeiting. Right? We're, we're giving something the appearance of the original system and actually changing it as counterfeit. So the entire system was counterfeit from mid-1800s, early 1800s?
0: It does appear to be, and we've got to the pitch now that the decade just past, the 2010s, has seen the Cabinet Office the latest repository of this trick, basically the, the guardian of all the Crown's powers that have been shuffled off and salted away. This cabinet office has now come up with a de facto codified constitution for the United Kingdom. It's called the Cabinet Office Manual. Interestingly enough, it had a precursor in the New Zealand civil service because New Zealand uh, is, in fact, one of the, uh, the purest preservations of this trick. It doesn't have the bulk of Canada or Australia uh, to have occasioned uh, demands for uh, a proper codification of the constitution, so much is still done there by precedent. Uh, the power is absolute in the hands of the Cabinet Office in both New Zealand and in Britain. They are perhaps pristine examples of the trick in action. Uh, and so at this point, ministers can't even assert certain things about what Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights or other constitutional documents require, because the Cabinet Office manual will say, no, the precedent and the, the custom is that you do things this way. You can resign in that situation and context.
1: What other aspect to this that should briefly mention, perhaps, and Green does, is, and, and Green praises this, and I, I take a different view. He says, the greatness of the English achievement in the past has been based on the readiness of a people to be guided by empirical considerations. So this is English empiricism. And English empiricism permeates many areas of life, for engineering, technology, science. So it's all influenced by this approach. The this, this Scottish approach has been more metaphysical, is more... Uh, in terms of first principles, uh, reasoning. That that has its advantages and disadvantages too. But I think if you are following a a system of empiricism without looking at a guiding idea, it can develop a, a horrible momentum of its own, whereby anything that works, however imperfectly, is seen to be justified and correct simply because it works.
0: And this, of course, is the Blairite revolution that Mike's been reminding us of. The slogan that's been behind that revolution and over on the continent where they lag a bit and and copy Anglo-American policies, you still hear this phrase is what works. Let's take a what works approach. Uh, If cajoling uh, people to send their children to school by threatening them with jail time works, then let's do it. Hang the law. The law can catch up with it later. And in the second of the essays in the pamphlet, uh, in a thumbnail sketch, Green does actually identify what went on just before Queen Victoria. There were, of course, popular grievances. Uh, this was the age where where there was lobbying for reform, uh, not just of the franchise, but reform of many things. And as Green correctly identifies, the roots of that thinking was neither English nor Scottish, but foreign. It was French, revolutionary, liberty, equality, and fraternity thinking. And the party in England that came into the ascendancy after 1832 to ram this through was basically not just English empiricists, they were Benthamites. They were devotees of J.S. Mill and Jeremy Bentham, who simply regarded uh, people as uh, atoms, as, as fungible concepts. If you've got one, you've got the other. Uh, so one is as good as the other, and they must all be standardised. Uh, and the, the, the basis that they bring in for the rule of law at this point, the theme of our next episode, is no longer law, experience, rightness, natural law under God, No, they replace it with the concept of political democracy. And in a section in that second essay, uh, Green traces how in a a mild form, uh, the 1830s see a repeat of the 1780s and 90s in France with these guardians at the political centre saying, no, the general will is that we move in this direction. And I'm here to enforce that will. Uh, so these gentlemen have interposed themselves between the uh, the, the individual sovereign or the, the sovereign individual and the monarch representing that sovereign.
1: And, and where does the idea of what works go? It, it ends up in the sort of system they had, they have in totalitarian states. Take Leninist Russia, for example. Uh, there was a letter from uh, someone out in the sticks of Russia to Lenin. It said, dear comrade Lenin, I, I'm telling the people in my district what to do and they're, they're not listening. They don't want to do this and they're not listening and, and they're not following uh, you, the, the instructions from the centre. What should I do? And Lenin wrote back and said, dear comrade imbecile, take some of these reluctant people out into a p- public square and shoot them and the others will start to listen. Right? That, now, you have to say, that works. Right? T- t- terror works. Uh, look at the COVID crisis. Fear works. Many things work, but they're deeply evil. And if we have a system that is based on what works, then we are all at sea when it comes to, to resisting
0: things that are deeply evil. You can see that uh, in a nutshell as the idea of lawlessness. And it's not just us claiming this. It's that very A.V. Dicey, uh, who in 1885 had written Law of the Constitution, which now lawyers in England and Wales are told is the ultimate enunciation of parliamentary sovereignty. Dicey then, 30 years later, just as the First World War is breaking out in 1914, writes that there has been a marked decline in the ancient veneration for the rule of law in England over those last 30 years. The quotation from Dicey is on page 23 of Green's pamphlet, and he concludes that there is lawlessness in England, which is suggested if not caused by, the misdevelopment of party government. And he goes on in that paragraph to say that even the concept of the national will, a wink to uh, or a nod to French ideas there, is a sort of political or metaphysical fiction, which wise men will do well to discard. So lawlessness actually had an effect in Ben Green's own life, because he was one of those who found themselves just months after Churchill came to office in the second year of the Second World War, locked up without charge, without due process, certainly, and without trial. And during the war, one of those so locked up by Defence Regulation 18B brought a case which got to the High Court, Liversidge, spelt with an I-D-G-E, versus Anderson. And in brief, the courts at that point said, Parliament has given a kind of go-ahead for ministers to do this without the protections of English law, that's it. Parliament does what it wants because of this absolute will. Uh, And so we see just after the war, actually, that has been enunciated as well by Sir Louis Namier, a great historian of Parliament. And he describes how parties stole royal prerogative. And he says that the prime minister replaced the sovereign as the actual head of the executive when it was no longer the sovereign's choice who appointed the prime minister. And the sovereign lost that choice when strongly organised disciplined parties came into existence. And party discipline, whipping we now call it, depends primarily on the degree to which the member depends on the party for his seat. Now that is really the uh, core of it laid bare isn't it Uh, why don't people get any joy writing to their members of parliament or trying to change their minds or get their MPs to see certain things like the idiocy and uh, unscientific nature of much of what we're being told about COVID at the moment well it's because if they get out of line with the party the party will not put them up for election as Mr Red Team or Mrs Blue Team next time and so they won't get elected. Isn't that the core of
2: it? Well, it is. But just before we get onto that, Alex, let's deal with one other issue of the, the law side, uh, because this situation of where where does law sit in, in respect to our governance uh, is being taken to a new extreme as this particular government attempts to prevent people bringing judicial review against parliamentary decisions. We're, we're being taken to an even more extreme position with respect to Parliament's uh, relationship
0: to law. This indeed was something warned about by Lord Hailsham in his Sunday Times piece of July 1970, the 19th of July, uh, because he said, quote, it is the parliamentary majority which has the potential for tyranny. Here it comes, Lord Hailsham warns, the thing the courts cannot protect you against is Parliament the traditional protector of our liberties. But Parliament is constantly making mistakes and could in theory become the most oppressive instrument in the world. Why could it be the worst of all tyrannies? Because it is supposed to be the democratic will of the people. That's Lord Hailsham's warning 50 years ago. And what you've just described, Mike, is the tying up of loose ends there, isn't it? The, the party beast is saying, oh dear, at this point, people can still, with invocation of human rights or other ideas, uh, ask a judge to look at certain measures which Parliament has nodded through, by which civil servants and ministers impose tighter and tighter restrictions on us from month to month. And at the moment, people can still say, Your Honour, is this lawful? Uh, we want to make sure that th- this doesn't happen anymore say, the party systems, and they're even using Brexit as a very useful vehicle to attend to that, aren't they? I'd like to throw in here just a, a quick observation from the Scottish
1: election scene, because we have Hollywood elections on just now, and uh, I, I, I had uh, an interesting exchange with a police officer outside the Hollywood Parliament a little while ago where I asked if there was any limitations on what Parliament could decree or whether they were absolute and she was very baffled by this
0: concept, but said, well, they can decide anything that they can, anything that they decide. Which takes us to page 27 of Ben Green, because, David, you and I have found this in recent years. Until very recently, a couple of years ago, uh, the senior Scots judiciary, uh, the Lord President and others, were saying openly in speeches, Scotland has no tradition of parliamentary sovereignty. And indeed, the English-based Guide for Lawyers, Hallsbury's Laws of England, has an extensive but rather embarrassed footnote in the section on parliamentary sovereignty, uh, where the main text of most editions in recent years says the crown in Parliament is said to be sovereign. And by the way, that itself is an admission that it's the Queen that's sovereign, not just a bunch of MPs, but a bunch of MPs under the Queen's permission. Uh, The footnote to that says not applicable in Scotland in some version of that. And indeed, uh, page 27 brings out that the... Uh, document the, the doctrine of Parliamentary Sovereignty, was actually first mooted by a Scot, indeed the Scot, who was arguing against William Pitt in 1770 and insisting that Parliament can do what the heck it likes, including throw out an MP who did things the rest of Parliament didn't want him to to do or say. But Lord Mansfield, crucially, is a Scottish Jacobite, and he's one of these Scots who runs away and becomes Lord Chief Justice of England and an active member of the government of George III, well known to our American listeners. Uh, So what he brings out there is that Lord Mansfield Field, perhaps hiding behind this this safe cloak of uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a prudent Scot, is ramming through ideas which at that point in the firm end of France and Germany were leading to the French Revolution. And uh, that ever after, we're presented with that as a fait accompli and as an English idea, which it never was.
1: Uh, the, the other thing I've noticed from the Scottish election is uh, a, a rhetorical trick that the SNP party, the Scottish National Party, constantly use. I mean, constantly. And the rhetorical trick is to say, is to compare Westminster or Boris Johnson or some minister of the crown with the will of the Scottish people. Right? They never compare Holyrood and Westminster, because that would go badly. They compare Westminster with the will of the people. And the implication, unstated but suggested, is that we, the SNP, are the will of the people. They are somehow not like other politicians. But the, the, the trick is based on the fact that people do realise that the Parliament, Westminster, etc., are not defending their interests or representing their views. And it's a suggestion that you'll vote for us and that will change. Now, that the second part of that is, of course, a lie. But the first part of it is based on a truth, a realisation that people have that the Parliament is not representing them, it's not defending their interests, and a, and a loss of respect um, that people have for, for Parliament. And when they had
0: that respect, it was actually the Queen, or in previous generations, the King, directly appointing the ministers, wasn't it? And instead of the idea that the ministers must command the support of a majority in the House for the policies that they were going to ram through, which had been cooked up by a party system in a back room, it was that ministers would continue to have to appear in Parliament not being members of that House of Commons and defend their policies. And the role of the MPs in that arrangement was holding the ministers to account on the basis of the coronation oath. Are you governing us in accordance with our laws and customs? as per the coronation oath. And the act of settlement for that point insisted that no MP could be a minister. And uh, in future, probably not episodes of this series, but in, in future productions, I expect we'll be going into chapter and verse as to how that was undone sneakily. Uh, the monarch and the monarch's advisors, for that is what ministers are, minister is a Latin word meaning servant, must be free to say individually what they think uh, is the right policy. And when they come to the House, they're actually being put on trial in some way. I remember that I had a Twitter exchange when I was on Twitter with Chris Bryant, who's held to be one of the great constitutional experts in the House of Commons, uh, a Labour MP from South Wales. And I asked him the simple question after he brought out his two-volume history of Parliament, is Parliament a high court? And he replied with this: the two-letter tweet, no. But uh, essay 2 of Green's pamphlets, goes into this at length, that the whole point of Parliament, the word itself means a place of discussion, is that Parliament is the grand inquest, the High Court of the land, the enforcer of law and lawfulness, not lawmakers, this term which has come over from Congress, where even in the United States system, it's not lawful.
1: This is the third episode where we've been concentrating on the subject of democracy and its ills. And I've, I've always found this a very a very difficult subject. This discussion has helped enormously. But I wonder, can you put into a few words how you view democracy now after these discussions?
2: I I don't know whether I can answer that directly, David. I think that democracy is not our political system. It hasn't been our political system for 1,200 years. Uh, In that sense, the people have been sold a pup um, they've been told that, that what we had was was not democratic and therefore it was not valid. Um, and we've been told that democracy is uh, the only way forward. But if we look at how we are attempting to export or what we're trying to export to other countries with the name democracy, if we look at what is being sold to us to, to us at the moment, and and the way that we are, uh, the way that democracy is being implemented, and COVID is the perfect example of uh, to show how how it is actually being implemented. Democracy in the modern world equals despotism.
0: I would endorse that. I would say that democracy is uh, a theft and removal, uh, at least in the form it now exists in Britain, uh, of what we used to have. Uh, Because the freedom of the elector that was so bitterly fought uh, through the whole of the 18th century uh, to have his chosen person in parliament, which people were prepared to be jailed, exiled and even threatened with death for. That's no longer there, uh, because the choice you now have, particularly in the English shires at a general election, is not between men and women who stand up and say, vote for me on this uh, set of promises uh, to be your obedient uh, representative, but they say uh, they turn up and say, I'm here for the blue team, the red team, or the yellow team. The freedom of electors enunciated specifically in the Bill of Rights has gone. When we get to ministers too, they have had that umbilical cord uh, dependency on the crown, which itself depends on the people under God, cut, so that the ministers under a democracy are no longer actually there saying, your majesty, I think we can do this lawfully or that. They come to the crown uh, or even the parliament or or even the prime minister now and say, uh, my advisors and my uh, tame lobbyists and my civil servants say, I must do this. Otherwise, my neck's on the line. So we all have to do this. So the idea of government ministries in particular has become utterly unlawful under this incarnation of democracy uh, because the appointment of ministers has been stolen from the crown and therefore from the people by this means. We have to return each ministry, transport, finances, education and the rest to the crown each time that the incumbent resigns or is expelled from that office. And I think also what we have lost in democracy is common law control of statute. The famous claim. Uh, made by Hartley, Shawcross and others, and uh, used as an example by Ben Green in his life, that it would be uh, legal, maybe not lawful, but it would be legal to murder all blue-eyed babies if Parliament so decreed tomorrow. That is the nub of the problem here, uh, because the common law would say this is obviously contrary to natural justice and it would never get through. But where well, Parliament has stopped being a common law hearing uh, of proposed bills, and so statute has ended up trumping the common law under democracy. We've also lost the supremacy of the jury, both inside and outside Parliament, through the idea of democracy.
1: Well, I, I agree with both of those statements. I would also add, we're now seeing the reemergence of the court intellectual, uh, the expert that, that gives intellectual cover to the tyranny that this system is unleashing upon us. Devi Sridhar, Chris Whitty, these are, these are examples, these are experts that are held up as uh, as reasons for the oppression. And they are, of course, paid for uh, by the oppressor, like all of the others. And uh, th- with this, uh, the, the oppression, the tyranny becomes ever more complete. The idea that we can swap the... The, the, the head, we collectively, can, can change the ruler but not the system doesn't really get us out from the tyranny much at all. That's becoming more clear as the parties become ever more indistinguishable one from another. As a, On an individual basis, under the common law, under the law of God, you have rights which are unalienable, rights which are absolute, rights which you can stand on and defend, and under this system, you have no such rights. You have
0: conditional rights. You have you have um, gifts from the state. Shall we say you're allowed to breathe free air, quite literally, as long as the majority of your fellow man wants you to breathe free air. And your fellow man can even be induced not to want that anymore. Or uh, to, it can be presented in Parliament as though your fellow man no longer wants that because it was a, a minor manifesto point uh, in uh, the package of the party that won a majority in Parliament that uh, civil servants will decide on such matters.
1: The result is a tyranny that, um, in theory, we collectively can change the role. In practice, we individually, rather than the rights we used to have, we have the right to, to, to change one elected representative, but only in the event of a tie, which there never is, of course. So the individual has no power at all And increasingly no rights at all, other than those gifted by the state. So we move step by step into serfdom, into slavery. And the intellectual bodyguard for this movement is is the idea that says, well, you voted for it. This is what you want. This is the will of the people, and the will of the people is absolute. So the tyranny is absolute. Well, that's okay because the will of the people is absolute.
0: In essence, parliamentary sovereignty has whittled down the three estates of the realm to just one, the commons. And even that isn't 650 people anymore. It's a single will.
1: It's down to the Cabinet Office, and it's down to whoever steers the Cabinet Office through the civil service. And it becomes ever more opaque and ever more tyrannical. And with this, we are fooled.
0: And of course, we have been here before uh, in the 1650s, I expect that when we get to the historical series of the podcast, we will talk about this at length, the Cromwell era. But you did have the abolition of both Crown and Lords uh, at that point, even though there were not modern parties or universal suffrage. And it led to just the discontents we've been outlining. And sadly, the only way that the system could go from there on in was military dictatorship, uh, which we don't want to see repeated this time. But that's the end of this episode. Uh, The natural progression now takes us on to questioning what it is that constitutes law and lawfulness. A.V. Dicey, at the end of his life, made this little noted uh, admission, a mea culpa, that he had ushered in lawlessness in England. So it behoves us now to look at what the law is in this much claimed phrase, the rule of law often mentioned in the same breath as democracy, Uh, British values and imposed on the rest of the world by Britain and its allies are democracy and the rule of law. So join us after we have put in some extra material as part three of this episode for episode six in due course of this podcast, which will be entitled Rule of Whose Law?